Minecraft video that's nine years ago. Yes, yeah. So there's multiple versions of Diggy Diggy Hole. The um, metal cover, which came out a few years ago, maybe even just last year, it was my most played of either 2019 or 2020 on Spotify. Okay. Uh, let's see, who sings it? Diggy Diggy Hole. Uh, Windrose. Yeah, it was the most played, my most played song on Spotify at some point in the last two years. Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. I am here with Nathan. How you doing, Nathan? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> um, I'm good too. I, I figured I'd spare you the extensive intro today because you're about to have a great weekend and I just want to keep it on a high I note. I appreciate that. It did catch me off guard though. I as messed up my usual routine of preventing my initial nervous laughter with a sip of water. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's... It's good. Uh, it's not terribly hot anymore, so we can actually record. That's nice. And it is going to be a big, big weekend. Uh, I guess I'll get to that in the did better or do better segment at the end. But All right. it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So tune in. Stay, stay tuned. In. Don't, ch stay don't change that excited. channel. <laughs> don't touch that dial. Don't touch that dial. Don't, don't click on the seeker bar and just, just listen to us talk. So that you can hear more of us talking. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of us talking, do you want to talk about any cool stuff? Oh, sure. Actually, frustrating so and I actually do have notes for this section uh, for this week. Oh yeah. Yes. Is it all Rocket League? No. So I haven't played any Rocket League in the last two days. Oh um, man. Because my focus has been on trying to sleep as much as possible, because uh, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how well sleeping will go uh, over the weekend. In the yeah, in the thing that you will talk about yeah, later. Yeah, I'm putting as I'm going on. Build up the intrigue. Oh, I was going to say what I was doing, but all right. No, no, no. Uh, all right, so we were actually talking about this right before the call. But for a cool thing, I just have, as I mentioned in a previous episode, we watched Bo Burnham Inside. And I've just been spending a lot more time with the songs and listening to them again and thinking about it. And it's just growing on me a lot. So. Uh, I probably do need to watch it again at some point, but in the meantime, it's just extra cool. It seems cooler than when I first watched it, whereas something like uh, Happy was very obviously good the first time I watched it, and I enjoyed it and watched it again a bunch more times. This one, though, uh, it's a little bit, little bit more time to percolate. Uh, other than that, interesting. So this past weekend, BC set a heat record for hottest, hottest temperature in ever, and then uh, did it again three days in a row. So it just kept getting hotter. So uh, we're recording this a day later because it would have been essentially impossible to close windows, run a computer, have natural light coming in, and look even remotely presentable. We, we toyed with the idea of just no video, but I was actively dripping most of Monday uh, for the entire afternoon just because when you have an area of a country that doesn't experience really bad heat we're really unprepared for it so like my building has no AC uh, things aren't made to flush a lot of heat out because it gets hot two weeks a, a year and um, it was rough so I'm glad that's over yeah Canadian West Coast just seems like they're they're meant to live in the mids always 
if it gets too cold and it's snowing, nobody knows how to drive, take care of their sidewalks, anything. If it gets too hot, we all die. And I was actually at the mall and it was so crowded and people were just sitting on the side in inside the mall, just on the floor, because that's where it was more air conditioned than outside. The I went into Canadian Tire to buy some things and the whole area where there's lawn and patio furniture, there were just families sitting, not doing anything. They just were in there so that they can be out the heat. Yeah, and so I grew up in Ontario, and so temperatures like this were a bit more normal. Boo. Yeah, exactly. Is it, they're a bit more normal. It did get to above 30 consistently. But the thing about that is normally it creeps up, whereas this went straight from 18 to 22 every day straight to 40. And so you have no time to adapt. Like even by the third day, I was feeling a lot more comfortable than I did the first two days, uh, just because my body had experienced, this is what this is what it feels like, it's really hot. And uh, yeah, without that adaptation period, it was, it was pretty tough for everybody. Yeah, it's like the bull market, but for weather. <laughs> it's just it's like weird. that, exactly <laughs> the same. And thank you for filling that in for everybody. Uh, interesting thing that's probably more of a frustrating thing, but I haven't actually confirmed it yet, is I was all excited about uh, Worms Rumble coming to Game Pass. So for anyone who doesn't know, there's a series of games, one of them I grew up on, and they're called the Worms series, and it was like a turn-based, uh, two-dimensional for the most part originally, uh, like co cartoon combat game with a weird sense of humor. and You'd play that a bunch, and it was like online options as well, except I lived out in the middle of nowhere, so it, online wasn't feasible. But it was a fun game, and I was looking forward to playing this new Worms game, and then I discovered that it is not turn-based. It is real-time, uh, like Battle Royale style. And so I don't know if that just is going to ruin it, because it's like the opposite of what Worms is. But I downloaded it already because it wasn't a big download and I'm going to check it out at some point. And hopefully it's good. I expect it to not be that good, which probably makes it more likely that I'll like it rather than being hyped about it. But we'll see. So that one's pending. It's somewhere between interesting and frustrating. We'll find out. And the last thing, uh, Quentin Tarantino was on the Joe Rogan Experience. And so I've been listening to that. And it's good because one, it's Quentin Tarantino. So it's interesting. He just says interesting things and is a relatively interesting person but he was talking about or at one part he at one point he talks about how he sets up the world and the first you know third or so of his movie and then the characters kind of just play out the rest of it for him like he'll set them up in situations and then he knows at that point how the characters would behave and they just sort of tell the story for him and then he knows at the end what they're trying to get to so he can force them in a general direction. But it reminded me, this is just more of an anecdote, but it reminded me when I was a kid uh, in high school, I wrote a novel for one of my English classes. And so I wrote this 300 page book in like 11 days or something stupid like that. But that meant I basically just woke up and wrote the entire day and then I'd go to bed and just write it. So I was as immersed as you could possibly be in a single story and uh, my dad was asking me like how things were going at one point and I tried to explain to him I can't get this one character to tell this other character this thing and this character needs to know about it and it just she won't tell him 
And he's like, these are your characters. And he didn't get it. So I felt heard with Quentin Tarantino saying that the characters were guiding the story for him and they told their story and how sometimes they just don't want to do what he thinks they should do. And he has to set the situation around them so that they'll do things the way he wants them to. It's like, cool. It was the first time I thought about that in years, but uh, it was the, the like most potent memory I have of me and my dad being on different wavelengths because he just wasn't getting it, which makes sense because it sounds like I'm a crazy person. Um, where can people buy this? They book? cannot. Is there a plan in place? No. <laughs> where, where can somebody who's a co-host um, <laughs> buy this book? Uh, <laughs> I think I would have to reactivate my old Facebook. And I could probably find it on there. At one point, I just nuked like all of my, my entire life, pretty much everything I'd ever put on a computer. I just essentially destroyed it, uh, which is a shame because I did have a bunch of cool like videos I'd made in high school. And one of them I really want. Um, two of them, actually, I really want. And if I can find them on my old Facebook, I will re resurrect them. This should be your do better till you recover all of them. Um, I'll take a job at Facebook if that's what it takes. Uh, <laughs> I got recruiters in my LinkedIn. <laughs> I just, yeah, just... Yeah, I don't... Is this what you need? I don't remember what I... I don't remember what I uploaded there, but I know I uploaded parts of it at one point, so... Maybe I could find it. But the main thing would be the videos, because I had this Welcome to LCCBI video, which is my high school, that I made for the school. It was one of my courses. And uh, I would like to get that back, because it's 40 minutes of just cultural references from 2011 or whatever. And, uh, and then I did a rap battle about Romeo and Juliet with my friend Justin. And I would like to find that. I would like to befriend past <laughs> He seems a lot more interesting than Trent. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, you're, yeah. Well. No, that's who, that's who I need on this show. I need a 40-minute rap battle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, yeah. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, if any of our listeners are good at computers and internet and Facebook, <laughs> um, which all of you are hopefully are, this this should be your life mission. Go hunt down Nathan's old Facebook and recover. As I said, I just need can. to reactivate it because I every time I I deactivate Do it, it. And just leave it. I don't know how long they can stay deactivated before they destroy it. But. Then let's not wait and find out. <laughs> All right, I'm like invested in All right, this. I can tell. Um, what What about you? Tell me. Let's move on from this. <laughs> All right. Um, sort of. Um, Cool. So two things come to mind, and they're both cool slash frustrating at the same time. Okay. So I, I started playing this game called Ghost of Tsushima, because I just play first-person games with good storylines. That's that's all I do day and night. And this is a completely different one, because instead of just randomly shooting or hacking, you are in old-school Japan, and you have a sword, and you slash through people. Which is a whole lot more fun and the, but the problem is the game starts up pretty hard even now it's like if you're not blocking and everything properly you can die pretty fast and partially that's very frustrating because certain battles I have to redo all the time um, I can just go turn it down to easy and then maybe it'll be easier but I would I hope know. so normal I feel like normal is a... I, I'm an experienced gamer. Normal, I should be able to sort of breeze through most of the game. 
Uh, but I'm dying constantly, and it's <laughs> frustrating. So I have to like actually come block and like fight with like senses instead of, you know, how in shooter games, if you have enough ammo, you can just kill your way through the whole area. If there is no one left to witness, there are no witnesses. So, but that's not how it happens in this game. So, but it's still enjoyable. Like, it's not like you're frustrating or you feel like you're grinding. You understand that you were being impatient, and the game's just like just try again. It's okay, mm. and so that's been sort of frustrating and fun. Um, another thing was Shopify, uh, which if you guys don't know about it, go listen to our episode uh, we did in the past. <laughs> hint, hint, sellout. Um, but speaking of opposite of sellouts, what Shopify just did is they dropped their app commissions to zero percent for like developers that are making like less than a couple million or something which is crazy good and it was really nice and the moment they announced it their stock price dropped thirty dollars because apparently wall street doesn't like it when you're trying to be less greedy and so it was nice and frustrating because full disclosure i had some shopify stocks <laughs> and i was waiting to sell them off because it was hitting all-time highs and uh, now I'm sort of just stuck holding the bag, which I don't mind. It's a good stock, but I don't know. I wanted to not be stuck doing that. But yeah, so that was cool slash frustrating things that happened to me this mm. week. I haven't been keeping track too much on how this whole Apple versus Epic thing's been going, but I think Apple said something similar. They were going to drop a bunch of the fees yeah. for apps making a certain amount of money. Uh, yeah, Google said that too. I don't know if they've actually implemented it yet, but they're. Like, it's it's so funny. It's like things are sort of coming back. You know, when these services launched in the beginning, they didn't have these commissions thing. Then companies got greedy, and now people are like, "You're too greedy." So they're like, you know what? We're gonna be nice, and we're gonna remove these commissions. It's like how we grew up using YouTube without ads, and now we have to pay to not have ads. Right. I. I could yeah. be misremembering this, but I also think I heard that based on whatever percentage or whatever numbers Apple was using, it was a massive portion of the developers and a very small sliver of their income. Because it's like, you know, a small percent of the top dogs make Apple most of their money and they'd still be getting charged the commissions. And everybody else doesn't have to pay for it. So the essentially, it's kind of depending on how you look at it, it's either the best or worst of both worlds. Because from where I'm sitting, at least, it sounds like the best of both worlds. The people who aren't making very much money don't have to pay a bunch of money to Apple. That's a large percentage to them, but a small percentage to Apple. It's kind of like when you're negotiating with a company, and it's like this extra three K means a lot to me, and it doesn't mean a lot to you. So that'd be great. And it's sort of like that with Apple, where it's like they won't notice if they charge you or not because you make them no money. But you, it matters to you because you make no money and you need that money. So that sounds great. Yeah. I could be misinterpreting it, but that's how I remember it. And, mm -hmm. and then the big dogs that were actually the ones complaining about it, like, uh, like Epic, they still have to keep paying because it's like yeah. everybody else looks at them and says, well, you're making a bunch of money. You can afford to, make a, you can afford to pay a bunch of money. And then, you know, debates ensue. Hashtag tax the rich. I'm, I can't stand by that. <laughs> it's not a political show. Uh, not yet, at least. Yeah, just wait for a pivot. Of course. It's 
Yeah, it's going to completely switch. We're just going to be... One of us will just be left, other one will be right wing, and we'll just fight. Perfect. And people will come to that. <laughs> and we'll switch, like, week after week. Oh, that... You'll be left again, and I'll be right, right. again. It might, be, it might be tough for me to switch back and forth, but we can try. It's a skill set. You better learn. All right. So... <laughs> Speaking of skill sets, you better learn. Yeah. Enter team communication. Exactly. It sounds like sometimes you have to switch between your opinions and communication that's happening across teams. So smooth. So <laughs> I suggested that we talk about this because it's something that's come up for me a lot. And uh, there's a lot of different ways that, because I haven't actually laid this out yet. We're talking about when you have a single team in a company and you're working with one another, oftentimes there's a lot of siloed information that you can just work on. doesn't really need to get out to other people. But other times, there are cross-team dependencies, requirements need to be shared, everybody needs to be essentially making sure that they're paddling the boat in the same direction, these sorts of things. And in order to make work uh, run in parallel, working on the same feature across different parts of the stack, across, across different platforms, these things need to be coordinated. And so, I thought it'd be good if we just discussed some of the things that we've seen go well, some things we've seen not go well, and how we would approach communicating across people and teams that are working on these different concerns for the same features. Uh, do you want to start or should I? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can start. So, very much similar thing um, when you're working with smaller teams, communication is easier, I find, because you can just roll over the desk and say, hey, this is what's happening. And they're like, cool. And you're done. And it's, you know, nice little story. But once you start working across teams, you have, Lord knows, I don't know, like 10 people per team, even if they say, and six teams are collaborating. Now there's 60 people. You have to communicate everything across so that you know everybody's in line. And then there's a lot of different moving parts. So like, for example, in our case uh, at EA, there's a, there's a team that makes all the decisions and everything that we are going to work on for the next, let's say, two, or two to three years. Then they pass it down, then people, there's the planners and the executor layers, and somewhere in there, there's the orchestrator layers that manage between the two. So that's how I like to think of them. Okay. So there's the planning and direction layers, which are the higher level people who are looking at more things like revenue and user needs and what they uh, are asking for. Then there's the orchestration layers in the middle, which are the project managers, uh, scrum masters, people, technical directors figuring out how to implement some of these and how to cross the communication so that they can divide timelines. And then there's the executors, which are the developers. Developers, testers, DevOpsers, I don't know, people who build the, the pipelines in between there, people, yeah, who, who nobody likes. Um, and yeah, <laughs> so, so that's, that's how I sort of describe the picture in my head on that's how it works. And then the communication happens both ways there. There's the top-down communication where they outline these things. And then they, since they're the ones actually doing it, they rely on past data and information on how these things will work. They turn it down to lower other layers, instead of saying lower, let's say other layers, and then the other layers look at it and say, okay, we can or can't do it because of whatever the parameters are. 
and then in there depending on the tools you're using timelines requirements this can cause a lot of friction or yeah I've actually never seen it go absolutely smoothly ever in my life so yeah those are that's that's like how I generally view these cross-team communication and what influences them so if I was following that correctly yours was somewhat of a like vertical model Whereas like you've got people passing requirements down that get implemented is that right yeah and then communication needs to happen both like vertically and horizontally where horizontally it's similar level let's say all the executors now need to figure out when the development team executes on their tasks passes it off to QA who then needs to pass it off to release and then all of that happens and then while that's happening updates needs to go back up the chain so that people who are paying us uh, know that whatever they asked us to do we're actually doing it. right it's funny because I don't know that I could describe how it's like uh, practically different but that is absolutely very different from my mental model of mm -hmm. how requirements are passed around uh, so mine's much more of like Men, uh, my mental model at least is much more of a uh, like fully connected graph of just oh, interesting. every every team is its own little node and then the sharing just needs to happen somewhat dynamically uh, so the way that it works on my team so actually let's go back to the simplest situation where I wanted to start with so okay. uh, when you and I were working together there was a lot of requirements that needed to be built at the same time. So it was like, we want to implement this new part of the UI. The API doesn't exist for it yet. Nathan, go build the API, and we're gonna have somebody else build the UI at the same time. In order to make sure that we weren't redoing a bunch of work, the way to communicate a lot of that was, both parties need to understand the product requirement. So that comes down from the product team or in this case like just the product owner saying this is what users the user experience should be and then the devs interpret that as necessary but then because the UI depends on the API being done I would essentially need to get the API structure de uh, determined as early as possible when you hit these endpoints you'll get data back that looks like this and pass that off and then that would unblock the UI on being finished up so they could play with mock data, make sure things render properly, and then hopefully, if we've done our jobs well, when it gets smashed together, they speak well to each other and everything works. And that's carried over to where I'm at now where I work on what's called the core services team or the core server team. And so we maintain the core REST APIs that we call REST APIs. They're really just APIs. Some of them are RESTful, most of them aren't. And yeah. No soap in there? Not intentionally. It's more so just like okay. you hit something, you hit a, a resource to update it, and it does a bunch of other stuff uh, yeah. as opposed to strict REST. So yeah. it's REST ish. Yeah. Yeah. REST light. And, <laughs> and so anyway, we maintain this, this core set of services. And then that needs to be consumed by other teams doing other products. We have a like a patient outreach product that consumes the core services that we maintain. We have the mobile devs. They consume the APIs that we maintain. 
um, we have scheduling that we integrate with. And so we're sort of this hub that needs to explain this is what our service is going to look like without blocking everybody else. Because try as we might and wish as much as I can that we could get the requirements first, build it, and then have it consumed. That's unfortunately not the way it works. And because it's simply too small of a team for everybody to know everything uh, that needs to be known, oftentimes we actually learn from the other teams that their requirements are not what we thought they were when we were given the requirements. So the way that we've taken this smaller example of what I gave at the beginning of me sending, here's an API, here's the response to a single dev to go work on the UI, we have public docs. And so we start by posting the public docs and they go up before the devs even started work on the actual code. And depending on what else they have to work on, they might work on something else for a couple days, give everybody a chance to look at those docs and see does this satisfy the requirements that you need and, uh, or if it's sort of a rush thing, they might just start on the code, especially if it's fairly simple. But oftentimes, leave it up there, mobile team can look at it, they can start building against it, and then oftentimes they realize, oh, we need this ID that you're not providing, or we need this other thing that, because if you don't provide it in this payload, we need to do this really expensive payload, or request to, do, to fetch more data to do this. Um, without the count, being the way that it is, we need it to be provided in this payload and you're not providing it in the right way. And then we discuss, because oftentimes those are in conflict with some other team. And so having something that's publicly visible that all teams can look at and say, this works for me, this doesn't work for me, it saves a lot of time on redoing stuff, which is what we were doing a lot of last year. And now switching to this public docs model where we post the docs first and then regular code has helped a lot, at least with avoiding rework. So that's been a big win. And if you're not, if you're working in a similar situation, highly recommend trying it because it's worked out really well for us. And rework was unfortunately very common uh, in 2020 for my team. Yeah, I mean, that was the theme of 2020, just reworking, everybody working <laughs> their lives. Uh, why not your APIs? Um, but what I, what I really got out of that, um, which I thought was interesting was, you know how there's that saying and everybody always is like, well, you should plan and think ahead, then execute, like measure twice, cut once or whatever that thing. But I, it, it feels like the more important part is not even that, it's measure once, tell everybody what the measurements are, wait for them to tell you that that's okay, then start cutting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, that does seem to be the case, yeah. Yeah, which, which again, yeah, it sounds like the perfect sort of agile model, right? Like you don't want to just take requirements, whatever the BA or the translating committee understood, start executing on it without making your plan, presenting it back to them and double checking, saying, is this what you actually wanted? And then them being like, yeah, that's cool. Or are you are you crazy? Yeah. And then, yeah, then you have that dialogue. Because behind the scenes, oh. it's a big game of telephone. Yeah. So suppose that product wants to implement a new view in the mobile app. Mobile developers chat with them and say, this is what it's going to look like for us to do this. This is what we need from the server. Mobile or the uh, product then has to come over to the server team and say, based on my discussion with mobile, this is what I need you to do. 
that then goes through a discussion with the primary representative for the dev team at that point, whatever that meeting is, it gets filtered through them into proper requirements for the dev team. So now you've gone through to the point where the, where the requirements are being fully written for the dev team on the server side. Nobody on mobile is even present in that meeting at that point because if you included everybody in every meeting in order to do that, nobody would get any work done. So we have found that it's because every team I've been on has tried that at some point. We're like, well, we just have everybody in every meeting that they're relevant in and then nobody gets any work done. And then we go too far and we disperse everybody and have minimum amount of people in the meetings and then nobody knows what's going on. So at some point you settle in the middle and that's roughly where we are. But that does mean that requirements get lost and things get miscommunicated through these different channels. So having a chance to then say, we've gone full circle, we went through everybody, this is what we understand the requirement to be as code, here it is. And then the people who originally said, this is what we're gonna need can look at it and say, you messed this up or yes, that is gonna do exactly what we need, thank you, we can start building now. Uh, it's, I think, as far as I've seen, the best implementation of getting requirements communicated uh, with, again, the, there's, each team is very small at my current company, so it's not like we can have a lot of representatives from each team in all these different meetings. So it's been the best way I've seen of, with a small team, spreading people out so that we can get things communicated without just pulling everybody out of or away from their keyboards constantly. Yeah, yeah, we definitely haven't shared that uh, very much with us. Um, there are too many teams with relatively larger sizes and it seems like the most of the communication happens, at least for the requirements, at very high levels. Um, even as, even at level as lower as a technical director uh, is still like two or three levels above the executor layer who is now constantly like also in touch with the technical directors and they can raise any concerns that they have but by the time it reaches to them it's very much like these this is the higher level of what we want you can figure out how to implement it and then through the horizontal layer we have the discussions of okay this is what I think the API should look like this is what I think everything will look and then we communicate that through our Confluence pages or Swagger Docs. It'll be depending on the technical or whatever information we're sharing, but definitely have had time where we've spent writing API endpoints, return response values on Confluence uh, so that somebody else goes and starts consuming it or starts building the API while we build the other part of how it'll have the communication. And then sometimes by the time you're done implementing it, you'll find out it either doesn't have enough um, the response times because then we also have our hard requirements of it needs to talk between five milliseconds or every request needs to have this kind of parameter and then we have to go look at the drawing board again sometimes it causes too many delays because from the top down it's very much like we needed to do this but fast what does fast mean <laughs> <laughs> the technical directors and teams can figure that out and then once they do it and while they're building it when they the people who are building it aren't necessarily the ones that are going to run it or host it so it goes to an ops person who's just like oh it's a simple python app well, i'll just give it some cpu and memory credits and then the developer is like it's not as fast as my 32 gig 64 core computer why is this not as fast uh, 
and then you have to go talk to them about the functional requirements again and where it's being hosted and it's always fun to explain why local host is much faster at API coring than a server would be. Uh, oh, no. And it's just little fun conversations like that. Um, but like if everybody sort of had that from the beginning, like if the ops person also sort of knew that it has to be like five or 10 milliseconds, right. they would maybe want to give it some more beefy CPU and if they knew what the development environment looked like. Um, just little things like that, yeah. Or just give everybody all the skills. So, you know, you develop, you deploy it, you maintain it, you manage it until you leave the company and leave a code dead. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, we're trying to get away from devs. We actually have a mixed situation right now where devs are doing a bit too much ops in the areas where we probably shouldn't be, uh, meaning like too, a bit too close to infrastructure but we're not owning as much of the manifests and things as we would like to, as far as like making sure that like environment variables are there. Like everything has to constantly go through ops, but then they're not happy with the stuff we're doing that's more ops, and they don't like that they have to be involved in the stuff that's more dev. So we're trying to split those things apart and figuring that out. Uh, but as far as cross-team communication goes, if everything has to go through ops PRs, mm -hmm. they technically do see it all and get to reject all of our crappy code. Um, but in contrast to what you just said about everybody having all the skills, I was actually going to say something similar, which was the opposite of that, in that knowing what everyone's skills are is really useful. So again, when you and I were working together, we had a scrum master on our team who did all the peopling and pr protected all the people from me. So none of them had to talk to me. And I had to talk to you. Yeah. It was rough. <laughs> it was like every day. Yeah. Yeah. And and then you <laughs> started a podcast. We have to do more of it. Okay. Just such a masochist. Yeah. Um but knowing that she was going to handle requirements gathering from product, discussions with other teams, um and she because she was also part of the dev team and worked as a dev, was able to bring in the dev concerns to those meetings without everybody having to be present. Uh, similarly, on my current team, we have a architect on the team and he'll sit in on the ops side of a lot of meetings and represent the dev slash ops concerns. And then we have a lead dev on the team and he tends to have more of a code view of like, how is our code structured at a high level and has this ridiculous ability to remember seemingly where everything is in the code base. So he, uh, he'll he often just bring in, he's the one that if you're like, we have a good idea, we need to find out why it's a bad idea, let's bring him in. And he'll just show up and be like, yeah, don't do that. We've got this other thing we already do, it's called this, let's do that instead. And then you check the Git history and it was written five, six years ago. And you're like, how do you remember this? So knowing what everybody's good at and having them so, like fill the, or cross those bridges for the team is really useful. So then everybody doesn't have to communicate with ops. It's the architect on the team who can represent dev and ops, and the lead dev who can, who can sit on those requirement meetings and say like, we don't have to rebuild this, we've actually already built it, and knows those sorts of things. Uh, and then there's someone like me who just sits there and writes code. Um, and then shows up and asks a ton of questions 
And that's kind of been what my role has ended up being on the team, is the person who wasn't in a bunch of those meetings and shows up sort of deer in the headlights being like, why are we doing it like this? Why are we doing it like this? This doesn't make any sense. And a lot of the times they have an answer, but sometimes they're just like, we didn't think of that. Because, and because I'm coming in with now an like, untainted perspective without having the context of all the meetings, I can ask before this goes to prod if this even makes sense. So at least on the successful teams I've worked with, having that separation of concerns with different employees, again, because I'm not working on massive teams, um, has worked really well. Yeah, and I think that then just comes down to the, the expectation, right? Like if there were times when the, the, the problem you describe or the solution you described when we were working together of people having dedicated responsibilities worked fine after we went through that whole phase of everything needs to be done quickly all the time. Remember, like in the beginning, there was this whole pressure of just getting stuff done and there was this whole push of this communication that didn't happen with the higher ups and the people who were executing that, hey, calm down, we cannot maintain this velocity. Yeah, things were uh, so broken. <laughs> things were so, yes, our QA was sad. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> by the time he would get a chance to like test something, we've already broken it and something else new is like being sent and then that's broken. And when he reports back bugs, we're just like, oh, it'll go in the backlog. Let's keep building new features. And I think a lot of that probably could, could have gotten chalked up to just not having that uh, communication back and forth between the planning layer and the execution layer. Right, so I th this is a word that I think gets overplayed a bit, but I'm going to use it here, which is the- Microservices. No, actually, <laughs> uh, which was making sure that each person is empowered in their role to provide the feedback that's necessary. So it's like the dev team, I've constantly worked on dev teams that are just essentially stomped on by product and it's like push this out, push this out, push this out. And the dev team says, this is unsustainable. You're making a worse product in like three months from now, this is going to be really bad. And having a team that is able to actually push back and have product respect that is really valuable. And it's always been necessary from what I've seen for the team to have an advocate that product sees as an equal as opposed to the dev team, which is typically like execute our vision for us. Uh, and if you don't have that, I think you get stuck in the situation you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, so cross-team communication, you know, part, besides just having good ways of communicating, also have that, just the, the communication, just just talk to them, right? Yeah, my, like, my... And sometimes it gets viewed as the, as the negative, right? Like you as a dev may think it's not, or may think you're like being unreasonable or because the business needs to get it done, you sort of have this emotional attachment of this needs to get done, that's what they said. Uh, but it's not worth you putting in your weekends or um, destroying yourself um, because it needs to get done and you're being a bad team player by choosing to breathe. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose. <laughs>
breathing breathing can be okay. Um, Have you tried not doing it? Yeah, like, um, I tried it a couple of times, and I'll just be upfront. I did not have a good time. I there were were times when, yeah, I I just want to be candid, you know? Just want to make sure everybody wides. Um, People like authenticity. But, like, (laughs) I do want to, like, touch more on the the understanding part of that though like and i'm not like fully sure how to word it uh because it's all in my head right now as we're talking about it and i'm thinking of scenarios of my current job previous jobs and places uh most of the time where it's been fine but every time something has gone wrong it's because something wasn't communicated properly because somebody in the chain is stressed or somebody in the chain does not know how to handle that or push back and that's where that sort of, if you notice that as the team, maybe the right word is empathy. If you're like empathetic, you see that happening. Um, bring that up, push back. I don't know, like just because somebody has a project manager or your boss title doesn't mean you can't speak up. Or maybe you're not lucky enough to have that opportunity. I don't know. I've always been grateful and lucky enough to have that position where I could just be like, hey, this is too much, and I'll probably do it anyways, but you should know this is not cool and we need to slow down. Yeah. Um, At some point, if you do that enough, you'll just get to a a team review where everybody writes that you're honest on your board. (laughs) And you know. You know what everybody thinks of you. (laughs) Yeah, they think you're honest. Authentic. Just honest. It was just. I am. I had something. Does everybody think? I had something else yeah, uh, to add. Okay. Uh, but I forgot it. So. Oh, was it related to the way of communication? Because I thought that'd be a good next segue. Like how, besides confluence or public docs, what are some good ways of maintaining this cross-team communication? I suppose. Having so there's a combination of things you can do on something like Slack, right? So you can post in the expected channels whenever we're posting a release, for example, or pushing out a release. Um, there's two channels I need to post in, I need to let the support team know, uh, just so that if they start getting um, tickets coming in to them, that they can potentially tie it to the release that we just did and let us know earlier rather than later that, hey, we started seeing a bunch of these, it's probably related to that release you just said you were putting out. Uh, And then there's this general readiness channel that's just for anybody who wants to know when a release is going out, they can join that channel, and before we release, I'll put it there. And then we have the automated channels, right? So things like, um, what's that called, chat ops, where you just get a bunch of like, here's all your alerts that go there. Uh, So there's a DevOps channel. I have it muted for the most part, but it still shows up. Um, So if, if I'm worried that I might be breaking something, I can check the DevOps channel and be like, any queues backing up that I should know about? Uh, but for the most part, I don't have to worry about it. And uh, those would be, I think, the two main things. Having shared channels with clear communication goals in them. Uh, so having a releases channel or something like that and for releases. And then chat ops, having whatever channels are appropriate there for automated communication. Um, thoughts? Yeah, chat ops is an extremely underrated tool. Um, mostly because, yes, I 
I am in DevOps, I do set up chat ops channels and I keep them muted all yeah. the time. <laughs> uh, they're mainly for historical purposes or it's easier to see a chain of events. If something's happening on your Jenkins CI while your production environment is being updated, some Docker container got pushed and there's issues, um, things like those you may not see in succession in different platforms but if they all send an alert when they start off and they're finishing if there's any issues you can see a timeline in the chat ops channel because it is basically just different machines talking and saying this is my current status and oops something bad happened because this guy who's super honest pushed a really <laughs> bad code uh, <laughs> and and yeah so chat ops is a great one because you can also have proper hyperlinks and URLs in there. So if a business person wants to just look at and doesn't remember which tool to go to for what information, everybody will have access to the Slack or Rocket Chat. And they can click on the URL and go to whatever the information or status dashboard is. Um, another good one I've seen is like dashboards. Because a lot of people in teams, uh, especially when, you know, remember the time when people used to work in offices, mm -hmm. Um, they used to have these like giant TV screens where there would be some sort of dashboard or updates and between teams you could see updates of how things are happening. Um, there is always, at least at the executor layer, I find burndown charts are good. Developers don't care, most people at the execution layer don't care about the burndown charts, but project managers and team, upper level teams who are planning these tasks can get a good idea of what the velocity is like, how things are going. Um, Jira has so many tools for that and there's probably there's definitely a lot more tools than I've used and know of uh, that I'm sure people who actually use those things day to day uh, know and yeah nothing else I can really think of Google Docs are pretty good uh, even like things like little stand-up bots um, just to have that communication between teams if you have teams working in different time zones which is something I run into all the time we have a daily stand-up uh, bot where we all post our stand-ups and any follow-ups we may need from the other team so that when their time zone is up, they know, vice versa, and we don't have to worry about somebody like either staying up too late after work or waking up too early. Something that I've always done naturally that I didn't think of as like cross-team communication until someone mentioned it a few months ago was just having conversations that could apply to other people in a more public channel. So we have a, just a developer's channel specific to uh, the core servers te core services team but there are other people in that channel like scrum master like mobile devs and so if i have a question about something or i have a concern about something oftentimes instead of sending somebody a message i'll just at them in that channel start a discussion and then other people can observe they can weigh in we don't have to then catch everybody up on context if it ends up being oh, we need to check with mobile about this, they can then look at it as opposed to us having to then transcribe everything we just discussed, give it to them, and then get their feedback. So, that again, you have to be comfortable enough with posting your questions in a public channel, but if it doesn't bother you, like it doesn't bother me, then just do it. And if, you're, if, if that's your team's culture, like we have five people or something on my core team, so that's fine, we can have public discussions, if you have 500 people, that's going to be a mess. So it depends. I, I suppose from what I've seen, um, it's always better to do that in the public channel than not. Um, even if there's like 500 people in it, maybe 
that's the then that's that's the core target group right so we have let's say we have departments i don't know if i'm allowed to say names but like let's say we have a department mm -hmm. x which has i don't know 1500 people 2000 people then we have depend department x.1 which is under x and there is less people and till that time you have team level slack channels and you'll always have like those encompassed slack channels because almost every decent company and or teams when they have distinctions like that where there's different projects or different some sort of logical group they will have a different channel for them to communicate the relevant talks so if there is something you think people outside of your team can help with or it's at a department level you know other people may not may know about it post it in there like we have a frostbite channel which is anything general frostbite and there's like thousands of people in there so if somebody sometimes has a very obvious or some like they're onboarding they're trying to use the software they have a question they'll just push it in there and there's so long you don't do at everyone at all at, at here channel. in large channels at channel yeah uh, people don't tend to get mad people are just like leave those as red um, but on the flip side people who are experts in that field they will have better visibility to it and a lot of people do check those channels quite often who are like helping it uh, pretty oftenly they'll look at it and you'll get an answer unless you get explicitly told not to my advice will just be always push in proper public channels because even in like DMs, one person's opinion is good, um, but I find more to be better if there's questions that you have, unless they're targeted. Like don't go to your company's general channel and just be like, hey, Nathan, how was your weekend? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Targeted groups for targeted conversations. <laughs> right, that's the old, uh parents posting on your Facebook wall, direct messages type thing. Yeah. So don't do that. But uh, yeah. I think the last thing I thought of was linking things together in order to keep people in the loop as far as, so like everything we have goes through JIRA tickets. That's how we get our requirements mm -hmm. passed to us. And then having the fact that they link to PRs is constantly useful. So anytime I need to find out, so like I can go into PyCharm I'm looking at some code. It looks weird. I don't know why it's like this. I can do git blame inside PyCharm, right click on the annotation that pops up, viewing GitHub, that pulls up the actual commit where they added that. I can then look at that and see what PR was that a part of. That links me to the ticket that they originally were implementing that for. So now I have all their code, their commit messages, which were probably bad, but are still there and then the actual requirements that they were implementing at the time when they wrote that code. It gives me a much better picture of why is it like this than just trying to figure it out from the code. And especially if you have comments that have gotten out of date or something like that, you can then see, oh, they flipped this from not this to just this, but they didn't update the comment, so the comment makes no sense now. Uh, and you can see that diff in the commit, and now you know that's why it's like this. I'm not just misinterpreting the code. So having everything linked together is good for communicating, I guess this is more within your team most likely, but I've essentially gotten you know messages from past developers on my team who don't work there anymore by taking this sort of route where I can look through the history and see so-and-so committed this code in 2017 before I started at the company, they've since left, I can see what they wrote, why they wrote it, and the ticket that was linked to it, much better picture. So. 
if you can set up your flow to do something like that, where you can at least make it easy for future devs to get the full picture, at least someone like me finds it really useful. Yeah, and I, I know we like did a very long rant about this in the documentation episode. Yes. So if you guys want more information on how to do proper documentation and linking, go listen yeah, to it. was the episode where I realized my entire job was just documentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's it for me though. Do you have anything else? No, uh, I had planning architecture and everything, but then I just remembered that most of that is documentation and how to properly like write good documentation. So yeah, be, be like Nathan and go listen to your documentation episode if you want to be like Nathan. Yeah, that's a big if. I've, if you want to be honest, uh, <laughs> go listen to that episode. All right, so what are you going to do better for next week? Um, I'll start off with what I did do oh, better. Well, fine, if you want to. It's a, it's a linear trajectory. It just it just makes sense. Right. It's like git blame end of Luke Calamine. <laughs> oh, that's why. All links that's together. That's bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did do better is um, I I so this year every year I try to learn how to swim. Uh, so far I've been unsuccessful. <laughs> Uh, and this year I, I had my first swim again, a little bit getting comfortable with the water, going in, got burnt because it was super hot. Uh, from the side, <laughs> the water. I was thinking that. I was like, wait a minute, what water was this? Yes, no, the water was right. good. Water kept me good. Um, you know, I, I wasn't in some cauldron moved by a witch. Um, yeah, and did that, did some more reading, which was kind of nice, because when I did, got burned and didn't want to go out, I just hid in my living room and read. Mm -hmm. And my pull-ups are now at eight and a half, from six since a few weeks ago, so huge difference. Yeah, that's actually a, a really big difference. Yeah, so I, I can now do eight and a half, because in the last one I used momentum. Aye. I feel like a crossfitter. Oh, no. Um, but... Oh, that's okay. You know, they they do a lot of pull-ups, yeah, man. Yeah, I know. Even if it's the wavy thing, but, you know, you you build up to it. So I'm hoping before summer ends, I can get up to 10. Because that would be hot, like this summer. Double digits. Double digits. Um, yeah, and then on Do Better, I just have a couple of trips coming up, and I'm just going to plan those. Uh, I have nothing else on my agenda. A couple of my friends are taking some trips across the island and BC, so I'm going to make some plans for them too because they're new here and I want to be a good friend and mislead them to places they shouldn't go to. Nice. And yeah, and then yeah, I'm going out with this like really honest guy on an interior BC trip in a few weeks. So planning that, taking another friend, and if we all don't make it back, please cherish the, I think we'll have 30 episodes by then. Or twenty eight, something like that. I don't know. Over six months of yeah. daily or of weekly episodes. So. Yeah, this summer almost made us break the streak, but now we can't can't let it. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I'll be <laughs> editing this right after we're done recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if the editing quality goes completely down and it's just me in the future episodes, it's because um, Nathan um, married a cougar. In the woods right. and is living there now. Yeah, I guess that alludes to my my plans. Somewhat, I, I just I just kept throwing up the mystery. I now nobody knows if you're like turning into some sort of weirdo. Um, 
like more than so. Um, so tell us what you're gonna do better and what you did. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's do with my my dids first. Uh, so I did actually stretch and like roll out with a lacrosse ball four days this past week. Maybe five because I wrote this yesterday and we're recording a day later. So. I guess it's five. So five, five out of technically eight days. That's not bad. Um, and so that was feeling good. Spent lots of time outside in the sun. Uh, not on Sunday though, because it was brutal, as per the aforementioned heat wave. But on Saturday and Friday night and Saturday, went to the beach and actually swam around in the ocean a little bit. Which that's somewhat of a a, a thing for me because I'm not much of a water person don't really like going in the ocean I have this perpetual fear of uh, undertoes just dragging me out to the water and then I drown uh, so it was a bit sketch but I was also extraordinarily hot so submerging myself in the ocean was well worth it and there was almost no waves because that's just the way it is at the beach um, I stuck to my diet, despite the fact that all I wanted to do was eat ice cream, because it was hot. And I, this is dumb, but I'm still, I still put it on here, which was I ate a mango. And the reason I put that on there was because I've, I don't think I've ever eaten a mango before. And it wasn't particularly good, no. but I did it. And I was just at the grocery yeah. store and I was buying my daily piece of fruit. So what I've been doing each day is after work, I just walk to the grocery store, buy an apple and then some other piece of fruit and then eat those on the walk home. Just gets me out of the house, gives me something to do and fruit. And I was like, I'll try a mango. And uh, I had to bring that home. I wasn't gonna try and gnaw on that on the way home. And then, yeah, it was not, not the- You didn't need the peel, yeah. right? Cause I, goog I Googled okay, what to do with a mango. And they're like, a peel, the, the mango peel tastes gross. Don't eat it. And I was like, okay. I won't. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it still wasn't good. The actual meat itself. Yeah. If it's any consolation, North America has the worst mangoes. Um, if you want mangoes that actually taste good, go to a country that's actually hot and maybe towards east. Okay. So India has great mangoes. Oh, okay. I loved mangoes before I moved here. There's like 50 different species and everything, and they're delicious. Oh. And then I moved here, and I'm like, oh my god, Canada has mangoes. And. Uh, that was seven years ago. I have not touched a mango since. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah. So that leaves do better. So my do better is this weekend. I can mention this because it's coming out after I get back. So nobody can just show up and, and find me. Uh, I'm going to go do the Wanda Fuca hike, Marine Trail, um, over the next few days. And as Gian mentioned, yeah, hopefully I don't get eaten by... Uh, any bears or uh, get hooked up with any cougars on the way and I was concerned because as of last week there was a another landslide and I wasn't able to the area between bear and mystic beach was uh, unpassable but they've put some ladders in there and that's supposed to be fine until the end of the season when they put a proper solution in so that means I don't have to do any weird in and back hike like I was expecting. I thought I was going to have to go like Botanical Beach, down to Sombrio, down to Bear, back up to Sombrio, find a way to get home, or 
back to China Beach and then China up to Mystic and Mystic back to China and then go home. And now I can just go straight through. So very happy about that. If I'm not on next week's episode, uh, it's because I died. And hopefully I don't because my mom will be very upset with me. And yeah, I'll be upset. Yeah. So numerous people. What happens to half your stonks? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, probably go to my siblings, I think, if I remember what my... Uh, what are those called? Beneficiaries are. No, the do-better stocks. Oh, you'd be 100% owner in this zero-stock company. I can't have that much responsibility, <laughs> so you got to come All right, back. I will do my best. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'll be doing that, so I leave tomorrow morning, bright and early. And uh, yeah, right after the show is done recording, I will be editing the podcast, uploading it, scheduling it, and then finishing packing. So I can go do that. So that will be my first ever overnight hike. See how that goes. Hopefully it's good. Over two nights. That's right. If you were there for like 13 days, it would be over fortnight. Maybe eventually. I'd need a trekking bag. I don't have nearly a big enough backpack for 14 days. If you just stop paying rent. How does that help me? Because um, then they'll kick you out and then you have to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> it's more but of a on, put on man. the parachute as you fall sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. I've heard there's a nice little tent city, 20 minutes walk from where you yep. live. Um, just put up your tent there. I could. Yeah. Well, that's the episode, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>